0: last seminar, was, uh, we've got Admiral Rahman al-Sayed uh, who is, as it says, here from the Department of Public Health and also uh, Columbia University University um, He's going to talk about agent-based modelling and obesity, so what immediately came to mind was Ross Hammond and uh, I'd be sort of intrigued to know where you depart from Ross Hammond and, uh, and, and um, where you've gone beyond what he's done, so thank you Thank you. Yes. Um, Thank you for the introduction. My name is Abdul al and I am a doctoral student at, uh, in public health here in Oxford, as well as an MD-PhD student at Columbia University. Uh, and I'll be sharing some of my doctoral work um, looking at system science and obesity in England, uh, findings from an agent-based model. As an outline for the talk today, first I'll discuss a little bit about complex systems, what they are, and what system science actually means. Uh, Something about systems approaches versus maybe reductionism, uh, which would be a good scientific contrast uh, to a systems approach. Complexity in public health, and then agent-based models more generally. And then I'll discuss the process of building the obesogen model, which was the agent-based model that was the bulwark of my doctoral work. Um, Looking first at the causal framework we employed, the basics of the model, and then uh, a short validation. And finally, uh, some of the findings of the model. We're wondering, does segregation contribute to ethnic inequalities and obesity? And are social networks important in anti-obesity interventions? And I want to uh, maybe posit some answers to these questions. Uh, these represent two of a couple of the analysis that we did, and I, I feel like these are two of the more compelling ones. So uh, you can ask me about the others uh, in the questions and thoughts. Any questions before I move on? What do you mean by segregation? Segregation as in the spatial and or social segregation of ethnic minorities or uh, socially marginalized individuals into specific spaces or specific networks. So basically, uh, when we talk about systems, what we're trying to say is that the whole or a system of moving parts is different, and the operative word here is different from the sum of its parts. This is contrasted to the idea of reductionism, which was championed by Rene Descartes, which suggests that the whole is equal to the sum of the parts, such that we can break down a whole into all of its constituent parts, understand those constituent parts, aggregate that understanding, and then understand the whole. System science then puts a focus on the idea of this whole system uh, versus the constituent parts in reductionism but to focus on relationships, how these constituent parts interact with one another, uh, both in space and over time, whereas reductionism might put a focus on the individual units themselves and what their structures and characteristics might be. Systems is interested in flows, so rates of change of particular stocks, whereas reductionism is traditionally focused in the stocks themselves. How much of a particular characteristic or functionality do we have? And finally, in systems, we have this idea of emergence. Uh, emergence being that macro level characteristics ultimately arise, and sometimes counterintuitively, uh, from the individual level factors interactions that happen at the micro level. And in reductionism, as we talked about, we have the idea of aggregation, where we just take what we know about smaller level factors, aggregate them to try and understand something about the whole. This is an underground ant colony in Zambia. This underground ant colony is actually 50 square meters. Uh, it was eight meters deep. Um, And when they excavated it, took 10 tons of cement uh, to fill it in. In order to understand maybe the the contrast between reductionism and system science, maybe we can understand how different scientists might approach this question of the ant colony. How did it arise? A reductionist might focus on the characteristics of the ant itself. The ant has a head and a trunk and a metasoma. In the metasoma, we got this poison sac and a stinger, got some sharp claws and some eyes and some pinchers. And then I might focus on the environment. This here is the, the Zambian savanna. And in that sense, he would attempt to understand this from the particular characteristics, or the agents themselves, and the environment in which they live. A system scientist might actually want to say, okay, how, is the, how are these heterogeneous? What's the heterogeneity within these particular types of animals? We have a queen, we have a male... We have a normal sized worker and we have a soldier. How do these different types of ants interact? Uh, and and how, does, how does interaction with their environment shape the potential macro level outcomes? And how do their environments, their excuse me, their relationships with one another shape the macro level outcomes? And here we depart with some wisdom from Albert Einstein who says, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simply. What are some of the features of simple systems? Simple systems feature homogeneity. That means all actors are basically the same, or that we treat them to be the same. There's, no, there's random or simple structure, right? We, there is no sense of organization within the structures of how small-level, micro-level factors interact with one another. There's no feedback, right? That means that what happens at one level doesn't necessarily feed back to modulate behaviors moving forward, which suggests, then, that there's no learning, and no adaptation, and no evolution of that system. Simple systems are deterministic. Determinism means that basically outcomes can be wholly predictable from the inputs. Usually, simple systems are characterized by linearity. Uh, Factors are linear. We understand behaviors on a linear process. And that there's equilibrium. They hit some stable point such that the stocks stay similar over time. Now, simple systems have dominated our understanding of public health. And here we go into some of the lore of public health. The lore of epidemiology. Dr. John Snow, was a British anesthesiologist, is credited as the father of modern epidemiology, when he stopped an 1854 cholera outbreak in Soho by plotting the population of deaths to cholera and finding that ultimately, the similarity between the deaths and the non-deaths was that those who died of cholera were drinking water from this particular pump. It was a pump in Broad Street, and it was found later that this pump was actually bleaching certain microorganisms from a cesspit that was nearby. And so he removed the pump handle, and as the storybooks say, or the epidemiology books say, he, uh, he, he bore epidemiology in this moment and stopped the cholera epidemic. We have Jonas Salk. Dr. Jonas Salk is the man credited with discovering and ultimately carrying out the research that was needed to produce the first effective polio vaccine thus bringing polio down to scale. And finally, Sir Alexander Fleming, who was a Scottish uh, bacteriologist, who incidentally and, and serendipitously actually discovered penicillin when he left his window open um, and found that some of his bacterial culturals had died because of a particular mold spore. And he was able to, uh, to, to take this mold spore, take it to the lab, and was able to deduce that this was penicillin that was killing the bacterial cultures. And he's now credited, in a lot of ways, with bringing bringing around the outcome or the, the, uh, the final decimation of infectious diseases as we knew them as epidemics in the United States, the UK, and most of the Western world. Successful. Right? Not so fast. Here I show a graph of the time of the cholera epidemic in 1854 and the number of deaths. And we see that when Dr. John Snow removed the pump handle, the epidemic was already on its way down. And so the simple answer that John Snow founded epidemiology and ultimately brought this cholera epidemic to its halt by removing the handle may actually be a little bit more simplistic uh, than the true facts on the ground. And how about Jonas Salk? Uh, this This is the story that's trumpeted by the American Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And what we see here is that in 1950 we have this dramatic number of cases of of polio in the United States, at about 15,000 per 100,000 live individuals, and that after the inactivated vaccine was first brought to market, that number dwindles precipitously until about 1980, when we have the last American indigenous case of polio. (coughs) And if you go to the Smithsonian Institute, who is 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 known as the uh, kind of the keeper of American modern history. What they'll say about polio is that, in the United States, polio was the most notorious disease of the 20th century, until AIDS appeared. On April 12, 1955, it was announced that Jonas Salk, using March of Dimes donations from millions of people, had developed a vaccine to prevent polio. Now, let's consider this a little bit. What actually happens if we consider this graph prior to 1950? A very different story appears. We recognize that um, that the incidence of polio had been kept largely under control in the years between 1920 and 1942. That suggests that, yeah, perhaps the sock vaccine was very successful. But the story is much more complex than we've been giving it credit. And lastly, Sir Alexander Fleming discovers penicillin and eradicates infectious diseases. Not so fast. If we look. In 1900, the incidence of infectious disease deaths was about 800 in 10,000 living people. Now, by the time penicillin was first brought to market, that number had quartered. And so the idea that penicillin is solely responsible for eradicating infectious disease in the United States may be actually a lot more complex uh, than we first thought it was. And here, Henry Louis Mencken tells us, complex problems have simple, easy to understand, wrong answers. Things aren't really as simple as we might give them credit to be, or that we might want them to be. Ultimately, human systems are not random, and they're not simple. And so human systems are complex systems. What are some of the features of complex systems? Complex systems feature heterogeneous populations, so there's a diversity of actors. And in our case, people who have different ages, have different genders, have different races and ethnicities, and social classes and education. People are different. Nonlinear dynamics. We have things like positive feedback loops that that cause explosions in the population with respect to certain features. Think about epidemics in general. Positive feedback. They have contact structure. They feature networks and organization. There's feedback. Learning and adaptation, which leads to evolution of the organizational structure. There's stochasticity or randomness. Um, There's disequilibrium. And finally, we have this idea of emergence. Now, An excellent uh, example of this idea of complexity in public health problems is the idea of herd herd immunity, which is the phenomena that the resistance of a group to attack by a disease, uh, because, so uh, excuse me, a group can have resistance to a particular disease simply because a large portion of that population's members are immune to that disease. And here we see the blue dots represent individuals who are resistant. And the light blue dots here represent individuals who are susceptible. And we see that this epidemic is moving through the population between susceptible individuals uh, with really very little resistance. However, if we immunize a large portion of the population, we recognize that a lot of the movement of the disease is curtailed, such that the epidemic itself has a lot higher resistance moving through the population, which actually protects not only the immunized individuals, but also those who are susceptible to disease. E.O. Wilson tells us that the greatest challenge today, in all of science, is the accurate and complete description of complex systems. And nowhere is this more true than with respect to public health. Where when we understand the causation of disease, we consider that there are social and economic policies that shape institutions. These institutions can shape how people live with respect to one another in space, in neighborhoods, and, and in communities. This influences people's living conditions, which ultimately influences their social relationships and their individual risk factors. These all land within a spate of certain genetic characteristics that operate endogenously in the individuals, that shape pathophysiologic pathways, that ultimately shape individual and population health. All of this changing over the life courses in individual ages or through environments as that individual moves, moves through space and time. The system's approach in epidemiology right, contrasts to what we have been doing. Epidemiology, to this point, has been about recognizing independent effects or risk factors, uh, which epistemologically, if you think about it, what we're attempting to do is decontextualize certain factors from one another. So we may know that something, right, one particular factor is a a risk factor for disease, i.e. increases one's risk for developing a certain disease. However, how do we know how that may operate with respect to all of the other risk factors if we insist on decontextualizing that particular risk factor. And so what we're doing, ultimately, is reducing the whole to the sum of its parts. And as we know, the system's approach suggests that the whole is different from the sum of its parts. And this is the idea here of emergence. Complex phenomena, as I've discussed, involve many moving parts, a lot of things interacting with one another in different ways. Um, And so dissection and analyzing these particular factors independently. May be questionable. Systems thinking, therefore, emphasizes the interrelations between certain factors. Ultimately, this approach will allow us to consider the heterogeneity, feedback, and nonlinearity that may shape public health. Allows us to compare and contrast some of the influences of certain assumptions that we have about how certain factors may be operating with respect to all of the risk factors that may be shaping risk for disease in a population. And ultimately, it allows us to consider how certain factors at the micro level may yield emergence, to yield sometimes counterintuitive results at the macro level. So now, some of the, uh, some of the, now to focus a little bit on modeling complex systems. Um, the methodology that I employed in this particular piece of research was agent-based modeling. Um, and agent-based modeling is basically the idea of taking artificial people and then modeling them in artificial space over artificial time, right? And uh, it may sound ridiculous, but I hope that I can demonstrate that it yields some interesting understanding with respect to how population health may move with time. Now, these individuals behave according to simple program rules that govern that govern their baseline characteristics, how they operate, how they're located in space, uh, and how they interact with one another and their environment. And ultimately, these individual level rules aggregate to patterns at the population level, i.e., allow macro level phenomena to emerge from individual level interactions. Now, with respect to a causal model, I mean, excuse me, an agent based model, uh, the causal framework that we employ specifies which variables interact with one another. And data derived parameters can specify how those factors interact with one another. And so one can parameterize, i.e., derived parameters from several sources. Uh, These include the scientific literature, taking parameters from what's known from other studies, targeted analyses from available microdata, right? taking certain data sets, analyzing them with respect to deriving certain parameters that one may want to employ in a model, or theoretical outcomes of proposed policies. And so one might say that I think a policy will have this effect. And then what we can do is work backwards and analyze how that effect may have arisen from particular individual interactions So we're working from the macro-level phenomena and working backwards to understand how individual factors may produce those macro-level phenomena. So agent-based models feature heterogeneity. The agents can differ with respect to a variety of different characteristics, including their ethnicity and their social class, education, where they live, who they're connected to. Feedback and adaptation. So the agents can actually change their behavior based on past experiences in the the model. Um, And so in that sense, they can learn, they can adapt, and ultimately, the model can evolve. Autonomy. The agents operate independently of one another. What one agent does is completely different from what another agent might do. Networks. So agents can be embedded within networks within the overall model, so they can have social relationships that ultimately shape this feedback and adaptation process. And lastly, these models feature this idea of emergence, whereby population behaviors and outcomes can differ from the sum of individual level behaviors and outcomes. Now, with respect to building this particular model, I was interested in the social epidemiology of obesity with a particular focus on inequalities. And so to base the model, what we actually did was we undertook three systematic reviews, where we looked at first ethnic inequalities and obesity in the UK, uh, socioeconomic inequalities in the UK among children, and finally, socioeconomic inequalities in the UK among adults. We used this uh, to feed forward and to understand the causal framework upon which we we're going to base this particular model. And what we found is, importantly, ethnic inequalities are persistent, and um, they shape, specifically, uh, obesity risk among South Asians and blacks who have higher risk uh, than whites in this particular context. Um, And also, there are persistent and important socioeconomic inequalities, whereby individual level metrics of socioeconomic status, like like, uh, education and or income, Predict higher obesity risk throughout the life course, as an individual ages. These factors, both in childhood and through life, predict higher risk for obesity. Also, family or household level metrics, i.e., ownership of a car, for example, uh, or head of household social class. And finally, area level metrics. Ideas like index multiple depri- deprivations or towns and deprivation scores at the level of the postcode can shape individual risk for obesity through the life course. Now to the causal framework. How did we actually think about building this model? Obviously, in the middle, we were interested in obesity. right? So what are the inputs on obesity? We found first from our our systematic review that South Asian women and South Asian men had higher risk for obesity than whites. uh, And black women had higher risk for obesity relative to whites, whereas black men actually had lower risk, depending upon the metric that one used. Also, we know that low education increases risk for obesity, whereas low social class increases risk for obesity, but also obesity can influence risk for social class. And here we see this idea of feedback. Now, if we take those things and aggregate them together, we know that ethnic minorities in this particular context have lower socioeconomic status. Uh, And so we have interactions then between minority status and social class metrics here. All of these ultimately feed back on obesity. From there, we know that living in certain contexts can influence risk for obesity in important ways. And ultimately, these contextual factors interact with individual level factors. So being an ethnic minority in a largely ethnic minority context is different from being an ethnic minority in a largely white context. And so we see then that these ideas of deprivation context, ethnic context, feed onto these individual level factors to influence risk for obesity. Lastly, there's uh, some really interesting work, which we'll we'll talk about a little bit more in detail, uh, from uh, Nick Christakis at Harvard and Fowler, James Fowler at uh, at University of San Diego, University of California San Diego, uh, that showed that having an obese friend, right, or being in a social contact with an obese friend, if that individual becomes obese in a given time step in a given time, one's risk for becoming obese three years on increases. And so what it suggests is that obese contacts can actually influence one's risk for obesity independently of particular individual factors, family level factors or shared space. So ultimately, we get this causal framework, where we see that ethnicity, social class, deprivation context, ethnic context, and obese context, all feedback onto obesity. Now, an astute listener might say, well, you forgot two really important things, right? Ultimately, obesity at the individual level is shaped by what somebody eats and if they exercise enough. That's true. And so initially, we built this. Causal framework that employed this idea of physical activity and unhealthy diets. And we had all of these individual uh, and contextual factors feeding on to these behavioral factors, which ultimately fed on to obesity. And we also had, as you see, uh, these ethnic minority groups feed directly on obesity, which suggests that there is likely some sort of endogenous or potentially genetically mediated risk um, that does not work, specifically through uh, behavioral risk factors. However, I think, as with any model, you face certain pragmatic issues with the quality of your data. And we didn't find data that was strong enough to be able to parameterize these particular factors. And so we had to remove it, giving us ultimately uh, this causal framework. And so it kind of reminds us of this, where you have one scientist who's standing in front of this machine and he's so impressed with it. He's like, wow, what a massive, complex machine. What does it do? And uh, this other scientist who's built it says, I'll show you. Uh, just hold that glass under the pipe. Of course, why? And so we built this ginormous causal framework right, to illustrate, really, the complexity in this question of obesity. What does this model do? It generates fat people. That's what it does. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So how did we parameterize the model? We took data from the health surveys for England, which are representative data sets in England, both in 1999 and 2004. And we used that, that data, microanalysis of that data, to parameterize the relationships between ethnicity and gender on obesity risk, uh, social class and education also on obesity risk, and finally, how ecologic contexts, deprivation, ethnic density, influenced obesity risk and interacted with ethnic minority status and or marginalization at the individual level to deal obesity. And then we actually took the metrics um, from the Chris and Fowler paper uh, and used those to parameterize the network effect. The model now, what it does is it follows a cohort of 10,000 agents aged 18 years in 1999. So this is a group of people who was born in 1981 who's aged to 18 in 1999. Um, and what we've done then is assigned each of them endogenous factors, ethnicity, education, social class, based on characteristics from that 1999 data set. So the population, basically, that we're modeling this cohort looks almost exactly like the population of 18 it's actually 18 to 25-year-olds um, from the Health Service for England 1999. Um, and we age them forward. Okay? So each of these individuals then, based on their ethnicity, social class education, is placed within a two-by-two or a a particular tile or a neighborhood on a two-by-two grid. That's ethnic versus non-ethnic neighborhood and poor versus rich neighborhood. Um, It's actually manual versus non-manual social class. And then The neighborhood characteristics are then shaped by individuals. And so the actual algorithm that puts places people in particular neighborhoods is based on placing people relative in neighborhoods with other people who are similar to them. And finally, each of these individuals is nested within a stochastic, which is randomly made, uh, scale-free, which is a specific type of network, uh, social network by ethnicity and social class, such that ethnic minorities are more likely to be friends with other ethnic minorities, um, and white people are more likely to be friends with other whites. Uh, and here we have a visualization of the actual network. And we see that there's a pretty stark social segregation of the network here. Um, and this ultimately, this placement in neighborhoods and this placement in the social network is meant to simulate how an actual population might look like. Uh, we know that our particular standing, social standing in society and or our ethnicity is going to shape the types of networks we keep and the places that we live. Sorry, what did you mean? Oh, sorry. Um, the blue... The blue actors here, agents, are ethnic minority agents, and the, white, the, the green ones are white agents. Sorry. So what we've done then is we run, every, we run the model over 52 time steps, right? And so each time step simulates one year. And ultimately what we're doing is we're taking 18-year-old age, three-year-old agents in 1999 and aging them forward until they're about 70. Um, and ultimately what we do at every time step, is we calculate obesity risk from a conglomeration of gender, ethnicity, social class, education, ethnic and deprivation context, and a number of obese contexts that one keeps. And we come, I mean, it's it's we can talk a little bit more about how this is done, but ultimately what we do is we take this, it ends up, it spits out a particular risk for that individual, um, and then we generate a random number for every individual. If that number random number is less than that risk, then that individual develops obesity in that time step. If it's greater than the risk, then the individual goes on um, to, and stays healthy within that time step. And then this is done every time step for every individual, such that we generate obesity over the population at time. Is that clear? It's not clear what you're actually put in. OK, so um, each of these individuals has, an endog- has a series of endogenous characteristics, right? His or her gender, ethnicity, social class, education, ethnic and deprivation context and where they're located in space. Um, and the number of obese contacts. And from that, what we do is each of those particular characteristics right, yields a certain risk for obesity. right, And then what we do is actually multiplicatively multiply all of those risks right, and such that we come to a final risk based on all those characteristics. So if women have 20% higher risk of becoming obese than males, then that number is 1.2 or something like that. Precisely. Yeah. But, well, what's going to happen is we have a, an a priori risk and then it multiplies that risk by 1.2. So it does end up being 1.2 times higher. Yeah. There's yeah. also 50% of the men and 50% of the women. Right, true. And, and of well, 50% of the 50% women. For the other things, we actually modeled it based on what the population looked like in 1999. So for example, if in the particular data set that we used, 40% of the individuals were black, then 40% of these individuals are Also, one last point is that these weren't assigned randomly, such that If one is black, that individual's risk for having low social class is actually higher because we actually use crosstabs to figure out what those or what the clusters between these particular risk factors might be. Is that clear? And is the purpose of the random number just to capture that stochastic element? Precisely, precisely. So the idea is that we wouldn't just. we want to capture a certain amount of stochasticity there. And so the random number allows, allows for that type of stochasticity because, as we know, the causes of incidents are not the causes of cases, right? So just because an individual has particular risk factors doesn't mean that that individual is going to develop a disease. And so we want to be able to capture that in some important way. OK. And then the outcomes that we looked at for the model were obesity prevalence with time, both overall and then stratified by stratified by any of the uh, the stratifications that we wanted, gender, ethnicity, social class, education, et cetera, um, and also obesity incidence. And finally, what we did is we averaged our model over 100 Monte Carlo simulations, which means that we just ran the model 100 times, and then averaged the outcomes. And this allowed us to yield 95% confidence intervals to actually look at uh, statistical difference in risk within the model. Is that clear? Now, to some of the findings. Here we have it. Uh, this is the water that gets poured. Um, this is life force obesity prevalence uh, from our obesity model. And what you see is, on the x-axis, age and years, from the age of 18 all the way to the age of 70. And on the y-axis, we have the prevalence of obesity with time. And as you see, prevalence of obesity increases, and then decreases quickly at about middle age, and then increases again. Now, as a certain validation, conceptually, it's, it's very difficult to think about validating this type of a model. Because what we're saying in this model is this model is different from other models, right? Because it allows us to capture all this complexity. Now, if we're taking simplistic models and using them to validate this type of model, we run into a bit of a conceptual block. The other conceptual block is that we actually also used simple statistical techniques to parameterize this model in the first place. Um, So the validation question is is a tenuous one. And that was something that we spent a lot of time thinking about, and, and how do we get past this? Ultimately, what we realize is the best way to validate anything is to look at real data. The problem is, is that this is a population that's 18 in 1999. That means that by the time they're 70, right, they're going to be—it's going to be like 2061, 2062, right—and so we don't really have the real data. The best thing that we did, the best thing we came to, is to validate using prevalences from real data from 9904. Now, you'll recognize that the shape is pretty similar, right? We increase, increase a little bit faster, decrease a little bit, and increase again. In this case, we increase, and decrease, and then increase again. And so we felt, we felt like the trajectory, age dependent trajectory of obesity, shouldn't change dramatically with time. Although, as you'll see, the prevalence here among 70-year-olds is about 50%, right? Whereas the prevalence here is about 30%. However, there is a pretty good explanation for this, right? Um, the obesity Cohort was born in 1981, whereas the Cohort, uh, here in, using HSC 1999 and NO4 data, was actually born in 1929. Now we know obesity is increasing. Uh, the best modeling on this comes from the Foresight Obesity Project, which suggests that 61% among 61 to 70 year olds in 2050, uh, which is a cohort born between 1981 and 1990, will be obese. Which suggests to us that this 50% number is actually not not that off. Granted, it's important to recognize that the goal of our model was not to predict obesity prevalence in the future. That wasn't the goal. It was to allow us to understand what might be causing differences in obesity within the population. So, in that sense, foresight is a predictive model, whereas our model is more of an ecologic model. But it's still somewhat nice to have other models that that kind of support um, the prevalence that you find as a sort of validation step. Now, to the research questions that we asked. First, how important is segregation in the etiology of obesity in England? And second, can targeting social networks improve the efficacy of anti-obesity interventions in this context? The first question. This is a picture of a fruit and vegetable market in the Tower Hamlets. Tower Hamlets is a borough in London where about 60% of the population is non-white. The majority of that non-white population is Bangladeshi, followed then by Somalis, uh, some Arab groups, and some East Asian groups. Now, the question that we ask, basically, is does living for these individuals here, or people like them, does living in this particular context increase? their risk for developing obesity, and if so, how and why. Now, a little bit more academically, residential and social segregation have been shown to increase obesity risk among Hispanics and Blacks in the United States. Um, However, there actually haven't been, to our knowledge, uh, and and we did a systematic review on this, so I I think our knowledge is going to approximate what's known. Um, There were no studies about segregation and ethnic inequalities and obesity in the UK, so we don't actually know. There's no data to base this off of. And just to remind you, we have contextual factors, deprivation, uh, black and Asian context, shaping or interacting with individual um, factors to yield obesity risk. The other thing that's important to recognize is we didn't only set out to model um, neighborhood context, but we wanted to or neighborhood segregation, spatial segregation. We were also interested in social segregation. And that's why when I showed you uh, the visualization of our network, you saw that there was a bit of a segregation between the minority actors and the white actors or agents. Okay? Um, and so segregation also operates here. Okay, So conceptually, as a conceptual exercise. How can segregation actually mediate right, the relationship between ethnic minority status and obesity? And there's about four, maybe a couple of others. Uh, but the four main ones that we came to are first, we know that ethnic minorities that live in ethnic enclaves may actually have a certain amplification of cultural features that may, similar to the herd immunity example, right? that may be more, um, may be taken up in a, in, a, in a broader sense, or mo- may be more robust in those particular enclaves. And those factors, those cultural features, right, may actually mediate a higher higher or lower risk for obesity in ethnic enclaves versus outside of ethnic enclaves. And so if we have a segregated population, you have more ethnic minorities living in ethnic enclaves, whereby this amplification is more of an issue. The second question is that, there may be denser networks with high-risk individuals. If we know ethnic minorities, who tend to be lower socioeconomic class, live in particular enclaves. Lots of times, we form friendships with the people who are around us. right? And so what happens is you have a higher number of relationships with individuals right, who, are, who, are, who have high risk to begin with. And so if obesity is communicable, and most of my friends are high-risk individuals, the likelihood for me to become obese becomes a lot higher than maybe if all my friends didn't have such high risk. And so in enclaves, right, where we have a concentration of individuals with high risk, or are likely to share social relationships, this density of social networks question may be particularly important. There's also, in, in particular segregated contexts of ethnic enclaves, there may be less access to food, to quality food, or opportunities for physical activity because of the built environment. Right? So because ethnic minority contexts concentrate ethnic minorities, ethnic minorities tend to be poor, those particular contexts, Right, may have lower access uh, to high-quality foods or in built environments that are more walkable and more exercisable, like green space or parks. And lastly, it may be that ethnic minorities who live in ethnic enclaves may have worse socioeconomic opportunities. Right? These individuals, because they live in particular enclaves, they're separated from really the rest of the economy. Right? The opportunities that they have for economic empowerment are fewer. So just to remind you, we placed each of our, each of our actors in a two-by-two two grid, preferentially by social class and ethnicity. Uh, and they were placed in social networks, as I showed you, by social class and ethnicity. And so what we thought to do is we said, well, what happens if we desegregate the population, right? We can do this because we, we, we put them in that population to begin with. So what would happen if we just decided that actually people have, there's no preference with respect to where individuals live based on their ethnicity or social class, nor any preference with whom people share relationships with? So there is no longer any social segregation and or or any special segregation. So what happens? Here we show obesity prevalence by ethnicity uh, at baseline. And what you see is the blue line represents uh, black agents, the the red line represents white agents, and the green line represents South Asian agents. And you recognize that blacks throughout the life course have higher risk for obesity than both their South South Asian and white counterparts. And there's really no substantial difference between whites and South Asians. Now, if we, if we segregated this or we uh, stratified this, excuse me, by gender, we'd notice actually there's a huge difference because there tends to be a, a pretty large gender dimorphism uh, among South Asians with respect to obesity risk. Um, and so actually, among South Asian uh, women, they have substantially higher risk for obesity relative to whites, whereas South Asian men don't. Actually, that's even, that's even biased because the outcome of interest that we're using here is BMI. Uh, if we were to look at something like waist hip ratio or waist circumference, uh, this might change dramatically. Again, we wanted to actually build in both of these particular metrics in the model, but the data didn't really support it. So we're left to BMI, which is problematic. However, to the question at hand, what happens when we desegregate? So this is the baseline model. That's desegregated. Baseline, desegregated. Nothing really changed. Um, this was kind of troubling, because going in, I kind of wanted to be like, "Oh, I can show it. Right? Segregation is actually really important. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm showing my biases to begin with. I, I wanted to be able to demonstrate this. But we really couldn't. Um, and so we kind of had to, to, to go to round two. And I, I want to show this just kind of as a, as a, as a good way to get around or to look at this, this type of data. What I show here are minority white differences in obesity with and without segregation. So the top two lines here represent black-white differences. So the difference between blacks and whites. Um, and what we see is in the baseline, the blue, we see that there's about, on average, around a 7% difference in obesity risk, 7% difference in obesity prevalence between blacks and whites. Now, in the desegregated model, which is the red model, really, that really doesn't change almost at all. Uh, and among South Asians here, we see the green line represents a baseline, the South Asian white difference at baseline. And the purple line represents the South Asian white difference desegregated. And again, very little difference. So, we thought, well, how do we get around this question and how do we actually nail this down? What's the issue here? Why isn't segregation actually causing any differences in obesity differences in obesity risk between uh, minorities and whites? And so what we did is we thought, okay, what would happen if we inflated the place slash network parameters? Right? So whereas the, the place network parameters, so we took the network parameter from the de- from the literature, but we took the place parameters actually from, from micro data. What would happen if we just said, all right, to hell with those parameters, and we just increase those things to 10? So <clears throat> a ethnic minority who lived in a high minority context now has a relative risk of 10 of developing obesity. Okay? And if you're friends with somebody who becomes obese, your risk of becoming obese in the next time step jacks up to 10. Okay? Now, we said, what would happen if we actually compared inequalities in segregated versus desegregated inflated models? Now, what this allows us to do, Right, is to isolate whether or not the parameters themselves are actually large enough. Question. 10, is that 10? 10%, 10%. A relative risk of ten. Yes. So we said that if your risk was was let's say 40 percent, right? We now multiply that by ten. Your risk for becoming obese um, for becoming obese in the next time step. So. What, what's the real parameters? Okay, so the real parameters uh, for networks was about 1.16, and the real parameter for deprivation context was about 1.04. And for ethnic context, it was about 1.06. Yeah. So at 40%, you're increasing to 400%. So you're basically guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So here's the obesity prevalence by ethnicity in the inflated obesity model. And what we see is still blacks at higher obesity risk. Uh, South Asians in green, next highest. And then whites our third highest. And obviously, it's been inflated for everybody because of the network parameter, but it's particularly inflated for the ethnic minorities because they kind of suffer the double jeopardy of both the network and then the deprivation and ethnic contexts, right? Now what happens when we desegregate this inflated model? We see that there's a substantial decrease in obesity inequalities, okay? And here we show again the minority white differences in obesity uh, in the inflated model. And what we show here is the the blue line and the red line represent uh, black-white differences. The blue line in the the segregated model and the red line in the desegregated model. We see there's a substantial decrease in inequalities in obesity. And then among South Asians, we have the green and the purple line, uh, and again, substantial decrease in inequalities in obesity. So the interpretation of this was that ultimately, with respect to a very complex ideology, multiple factors that feed in on obesity risk, uh, segregation may not be of sufficient importance to more focus, i.e., the difference in risk for an ethnic minority or a poor individual who lives in a high minority context or a deprived context is not actually high enough to be focusing on. Now, this is an important question because ultimately, uh, when we think about reducing obesity inequalities, there are several potentially intervenable points. And segregation has been posited from other studies as a potentially uh, intervenable point. And what we suggest is actually that the risk, at least in this particular context, may be very different in the United States, uh, but in this particular context doesn't actually warrant focusing on uh, contextual deprivation or contextual or social segregation um, as a point of leverage uh, to reduce inequalities in obesity. Now, I put disasters here. Why? To go back to this question, right? we talked about how segregation may mediate ethnic disparities. And we talked about these four particular mechanisms. Now, our methods approximate these four. However, they don't approximate this one. right? So one would expect if segregation, maybe the effect of segregation on ethnic minority obesity risk, may be mediated by differential socioeconomic opportunities. That means that if we were to desegregate a population, start from scratch and desegregate moving forward, right, there would be different socioeconomic opportunities such that the social class and education levels of ethnic minorities would have changed. But in our model, they didn't change when they desegregated. And so it's important to recognize that we didn't actually rule out this particular factor as a mediator right, of the effects of segregation because we weren't able to, to operationalize it in the model. Is that clear? Now, what, suggests, what that suggests to us is, I mean, as I said, we can't account for changing socioeconomic opportunities among ethnic minorities. Uh, what that suggests is that contextually focused uh, socioeconomic interventions, opportunities for trying to improve the opportunities of ethnic minorities in segregated contexts, may actually do something to improve obesity risk among those groups. Is that clear? Second question, can targeting social networks improve the efficacy of anti-obesity interventions? A little bit of background. Now, Krustakis and Fowler, like I told you about this 2007 study in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that obesity was communicable across social network tasks. Uh, this suggests that networks should be something that we're considering when we're attempting to intervene against obesity in the population. Now, this was greeted with a whole bunch of enthusiasm. This was a front page article. The New York Times was also referenced in the Health Science section. But obesity spreads to friends, studies to conclude. And, uh, and here in The Guardian, always known for its much more flamboyant uh, uh, headlines, right? Are your friends making you fat? Um, but as you can see, this was, this was a study that was well received uh, both in the, the academic literature and the popular literature. and something that people have been talking about. Now, our question was that, can knowledge about networks make our interventions more efficient? We tested the effects of two different interventions. One was a prevention intervention that decreased that actually precluded obesity among 10% of the population. So we completely prevented obesity from 10% of the population. Right? And the other one was a treatment intervention where we where we treated 10% of the population every year. Now that treatment could be something like gastric banding, right? Or basically taking 10% of everybody's obese and slapping a gastric band onto their stomach and, and in that way. Given, I mean, outcomes aren't perfect, but in that sense that's one way we can think about a stylized intervention that looks like this. And the question that we had is, well, do interventions targeted to the most well-connected individuals outperform those implemented at random? So what happens is, the question ultimately is, if we take this prevention intervention, right, and we take 10% of the population at random, right, and we preclude their ability to become obese, right, is it actually more effective to take the top, 10, the top 10% of most well-connected individuals and preclude their ability to become obese? And the reason that works conceptually is, well, because if they're well-connected and obesity is communicable, right, then if we prevent them from becoming obese, then ultimately we're preventing all these other people who are, who are attached to them from becoming obese. Um, and the same with the treatment intervention. Now, just to show, here's the median-median connections among the most well-connected 10% and all others. And as you can see, the top most well-connected 10%, so these are like your stars, all right? They've got a median number of about 26 uh, social connections and a mean of about 17, right? Whereas, compared to everybody else, we have a median number of about 7 and a mean of about 5. Can I just ask you, what a social connection is? So that's, that's a good question. It's, um, it's somewhere between a marriage and a friendship and, and a acquaintance. Uh, so here's the problem, right? We could have, ideally what you'd what want to do is have all different types of social connections operationalized. So you have like marriages and you'd have like father-son or father-daughter, mother-son, mother-daughter connections, you'd have like your neighbor, right? You'd have your best friend. Uh, the problem is, is that there's very there's very little data about this to begin with. And since we wanted to operationalize from the literature, we were limited to what actual is we could operationalize from. So this is basically like a one-zero binary social relationship. Either like we know some one another in some weird way, or we don't, right? That that kind of approximates everything that you could possibly have. Around the realm relationships, right? What did they use in their original study? What, what did they like say was a social connection? So they had they had they actually broke it down. Uh, they took they took friends and spouses and friends who weren't reciprocal friends, right? So basically, I say like Lucas is my friend. But Lucas doesn't list me as his friend, right? That might have a differential impact on my obesity risk, right? The issue is that building, building social networks, like when you actually build them computationally, is, is really difficult. Um, every one of these models that I'm showing you here took about eight hours to run on a server. Because we're taking 10,000 people, calculating their risk for becoming obese individually over time. Right, every one, of the, every one of them, and then doing it 100 times over, right, And so regenerating social networks is actually really, really intensive. And so when you start throwing a lot of heterogeneity in the social network, it I mean, expands the amount of. You almost move to the realm of incomprehensibility from the computer. The computer can't calculate it within a reasonable amount of time. Uh, and so what you have to do is you just run fewer Monte Carlos, which gives you a more like a dirty type of analysis. So, yeah. What does it mean to have? I mean, a get what it means to have 26 connections. That just seems. So it's not just, it's not like we're Facebook friends, right? We're talking about like 26 friends. And the idea is more of the, like the focus that we, we have here is the, um, is the difference between these ones, right? So theoretically, you could scale it, right? It shouldn't really make a big difference. These guys can have 260 connections, and these guys could have like 50, right? But it's the scale of it. Is that clear? Okay, and so here I show targeted and at random prevention versus baseline obesity prevalence. And the baseline here is the red, Uh, the at random is the blue, and the target is the green. And what we see is actually there's no significant difference between any of these except for between the uh, targeted, excuse me, the the at random, and the baseline after the age of 60. Now, um, we actually, one of the other analyses I didn't show was just going out and looking at. How do, we, how do we think about prevention interventions? Is this stop stop everybody above 10% better, or decrease everybody's risk by 10% better? Um, um, that's a kind of different question for a different day. But I want you to kind of just look at the, the relative differences here. Here we have targeted versus at random treatment, right? So the baseline is the red. And we see at random and targeted a very little difference. Now, similarly to the, to the last, uh, study. What we did is we said, okay, what would happen if we inflated the network, inter- the network parameter, right? So again, we influ- influenced the effect of obese contacts on an individual's risk of becoming obese to a relative risk of 10. Okay? Now, we, then, run re- we would then rerun both interventions. And what we find here is that targeted outperforms at random pretty substantially. Now, interestingly, this is for the preventive intervention. Now, for the treatment intervention, we see that actually at random outperformed the target, Which was actually really counterintuitive. We didn't think that that was going to be the case. But when we thought about it, we actually recognized that this has a bit of an explanation. All right. So if you bear with me on these stick figures here, right? We have this population, this is the really well-connected guy. This is like, this is Oprah. Okay? These are all of Oprah's watches. All right? Now, when we jack up, we inflated right, the network parameter. That means that basically, if a friend becomes obese, you're going to become obese. Right? So if we think about it, now, one of Oprah's watchers becomes obese? Okay? And so what that watcher is going to do is it's going to exert an obesogenic pressure on the individual who's really well connected, right? such that now, this individual is also obese. Okay? Now, he's exerting, or she's exerting, in this case, Oprah, Um, an obesogenic pressure on all of the washers, okay? Even if we treated Oprah, this is the treatment intervention, by the way, right? So even if we treated Oprah, she still, right, exerted this obesogenic pressure on everyone else. So they're all obese, and she's now back to normal weight because we treated her. Now, what happens thereafter? All of them turn back on Oprah, right? (laughs) Because now that she has four, five obese, well, six obese friends, right, it's almost inevitable that she's going to become obese again. Which leaves us with a very obese population. Okay? Now, we can think counterfactually and say, what would have happened if Oprah was actually one of these people on the side? Right? Her likelihood for becoming obese, right, even after intervention, might have decreased because she hadn't already made everybody else around her so obese and there weren't so many people around her to begin with. Is that clear? Now, the interpretation is that, with respect to the complex ideology of obesity in England, the influence of social networks, again, may not be of sufficient ideological importance to warrant targeting interventions towards social networks. Yeah. Just a quick question on the previous slide Is there any uh, evidence about whether or not the likelihood of relapse is uh, significantly different from before? So. Um, there's not any. I mean, we haven't really looked at that. Um, again, the only study of which I'm aware that actually looks at real data with respect to social network influences yeah. is the Christakis and Powell study, and they definitely haven't been intervening and looking at outright backwards. Um, okay, great. Um, anyway, so I made the argument, right, that <clears throat> public health is a complex phenomenon, and that a complex phenomenon there are many, many parts that suggest that dissecting and analyzing each particular part independently may not actually be appropriate. That suggests that systems thinking, right? In systems thinking, we emphasize the interrelations between these particular factors, right? And what we attempted to do was create a model that looked at all of these particular factors together, rather than decontextualizing each particular risk factor without looking at all of the, all of the contextual risk factors around that individual risk factor. And so as I hope to show, the consideration of uh, excuse me, systems approaches allow us to consider heterogeneous, heterogeneity, feedback, and nonlinearity. They allow us to, com- to consider and to compare uh, and contrast the influences of certain assumptions that we have about how certain factors may be operating right, in a contextual focus uh, to create a certain observed phenomenon, in this case, obesity. Uh, and ultimately, we capture this idea of emergence of complex processes at micro-levels. Uh, I'd like to thank Many people. Um, it's Dr. Peter Scarborough, who is uh, my main supervisor at the British Heart Foundation, uh, Professor Michael Goldacre, Professor Sandra Valle at Columbia, uh, British Heart Foundation, Health Promotion Research Group, Oxford University, Department of Epidemiology at Columbia. Uh, I worked very diligently and very closely with um, uh, my programmer, Mr. Lars Simon in, uh, in Houston, who's the man if you ever need a good programmer. Um, and finally, generous financial support of many, many different institutions, including the Rhodes Trust. Uh, Department of Epidemiology Columbia, and Union Complex Systems Institute, part of the Public Health here, British Heart Foundation, and Oriel College. With that, questions and thoughts?